I'll be reading from 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Well, Peter spent plenty of time reminding us of this great salvation. I mean, he begins his whole letter this way. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he begins everything with praise, considering the great work that God has done for us in salvation. I mean, he goes right into saying that according to his mercy, he has given us new birth. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That he's given to us an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, undefiled. It's kept in heaven for us. And he's even keeping us for that same inheritance, preserving us by faith. Peter begins immediately with the greatness of our salvation. And it's all ours according to his mercy. It's so great that even suffering, he says, though you suffer for a little while, yet you rejoice. Suffering doesn't dent our ability to worship. Not only that, but this salvation that's so great, angels have longed to peer into it. Angels have longed to understand what has now been manifest for us. So, so Peter begins his letter reminding us of the importance of, do you understand the richness and the vitality of your salvation? Have you comprehended it? Because he starts there before he moves into the response that we give to God. You see in 13, he says, therefore, he's moving from the greatness of salvation. He begins with this gracious work of God on our behalf, before he speaks to how we respond to God over that salvation. In other words, he wants to make sure that we as pilgrims know, this is what God's done for you. Before he ever calls you to respond to that work. This is what we call the, the, the um, indicative-imperative relationship. God always speaks to us over who we are in Christ before he ever calls us to do anything in Christ's name. We see it in the Ten Commandments. You see the Ten Commandments and you think, how am I ever going to keep that list? But before that, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Grace always undergirds commands. God, you cannot keep God's commands apart from his grace. And that's why when we look at the commands of Scripture, we recognize that our obedience to what he's going to tell us to do here, our obedience is birthed out of a love for God. Our obedience is not to secure his love. It's a reflection of it. He's already loved us. He's already saved us. He's already moved 
with a great salvation. So now it's in light of all that he is and all that he's done. He begins to say, therefore. And what he does is he gives us three commands, three imperatives here. The first couple verbs that you see in verse 13, they're not the imperative. They're not the command. The commands are three. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. And second command is going to be that you are to be holy as he is holy. And then the third command we see is conduct yourselves with fear. And we'll try to understand that. It's like three dials on a car, you know, or, or three. You have, the, you have the fuel gauge, you know, telling you how much fuel you have. You have the, the temperature gauge telling you the temperature of the engine. You have the, the gauge indicating the power for the battery. They all need to be operating. I don't want you to see one command over another. They're all to be operating in our lives. These commands. Let's look at the first one, though. Set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed to you. Set your hope fully or firmly. Now, when we think of the word hope, we tend to, in, in modern, modern use, we tend to look at it as more of a wish or more of a desire, like, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, or I hope I get this job. or It's kind of a desire that you have. But the Bible doesn't look at the word hope as kind of an uncertain future. The, the word in the Bible for hope is a confident expectation. It's something that we can trust in, we can pray about, we can pursue. And, and the reason it's different in the Bible, because the future hope we have is grounded in a past event, that is the resurrection. And, and so this resurrection of Jesus, which has happened, death has been defeated in the death of Christ, gives us a hope that's now certain and fixed. That's why he says in verse 3 that you know we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. And, and this hope we are to set fully on, the, the hope of salvation. We're to set our minds fully on. If you can kind of think of a, of a marksman with a scope kind of putting the crosshairs on a target. He's not so concerned about the stuff around the target. He is setting his mark right on that bullseye. And so Peter's saying to us, that while we're living in exile, three things that we're called to do in this text, while we're living in this land, while we are citizens of heaven, we are exiles in this earth, we're pilgrims on a journey. He says, while you're in exile, set your hope fully. But what are we to set our hope fully on? Well, he says the grace that's to be revealed. The salvation that we've just spoken about in verses 3 through 12, that's one, that's one Greek sentence. All the beautiful treasures in that verse are for us to set our hope on. This idea of being born again to a living hope, that you never need to fear death, you will live forever with God, that you have an inheritance imperishable waiting for you, that God is going to persevere you in faith to make sure that you will receive it and enjoy it, uh, to set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed. That is at the revelation of Christ. When he returns, we will be like him because we will see him. Think about that for just a moment. He's saying, set your mind on this idea that all justice will be meted out. Equity. There will be no, there will be no unfairness. All wrongs will be righted. Uh, you will be in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. You, know, you have a picture of it in Revelation 21 where God will dwell with man and man will dwell with God. There'll be no more crying, mourning. There'll be no more pain. The old order of things, the order we're walking through right now, it's all going to go away. If you can think of the, the most intense 
satisfying moment in your life. It could be in a relationship. It could be in some accomplishment you made. It could be in whatever aspect of life, whatever that most intense, that most beautiful, that most satisfying event, that's only a foretaste of what's to come. That's only a lure to get you ready for what he has for us. This is what we're to set our mind on. Now, of course, set our hope on. Now, you may want to say, well, how do I do that? I mean, I want to do that, but how? Well, he tells us in those two participles, those two verbs up front where he says, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Peter's saying this is how you set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed, that you prepare your minds. Some of your translations may have you gird up your minds. And the idea of girding up is kind of an expression used when in the days where men would wear robes. And if you had to move quickly or if you had to be agile, you would, you would take up the extra material of your robe and tuck it in your belt so that your legs are going to be free to move quickly. And what he's saying here is a metaphor that our minds are to be actively pursuing this great grace that will be revealed to us, that, that we are called to engage with all the mental capacities that we have to understand the promise of God that we will be with him forever. To gird up your minds is what he's saying, to think about it. That, that we're not to be kind of floating down the lazy river of intellect about what we have in Christ. That we're to be pursuing it. In fact, he follows it with be sober-minded. You know, I don't think he's speaking about alcohol in this context because it's a metaphor of the mind. He's saying don't allow the intoxicating influences of the world to dissuade you from where your hope should be set. Uh, Don't be easily numbed to the beauty of salvation because of the things that are right in front of your nose distracting you, trying to gather your attention. He wants the mind secure, setting the hope on the grace to be revealed because it's in the mind where we go off trail. You know, sin, the act of murder or adultery, I think most of us know, rarely does it just happen. Usually there are desires that precede the act of murder or adultery. There's anger, there's lust. And and the desires kind of are, are the seedbed. It forms and then it gives birth to the action of murder or adultery. But you know what precedes the desires is the imagination. The Puritans were were scholars of the soul. And they said, watch what's in your mind, in your imagination. Because the imagination is what fuels the desires. It's like the wood for the fire. What we play about in our mind moves into fueling desires, which then give birth to actions, actions that we would walk away from. I can't believe I just did that. But it begins in the mind. And so he says, prepare your minds. Be sober-minded. Gird up your mind. So if we're going to walk out this this beautiful instruction that Peter has given to us to set our hope fully on the grace to be revealed, it starts in the minds. Now, if social scientists are correct, we have approximately 50,000 thoughts a day. 50,000. I don't believe there are 50,000 different thoughts, but your mind is bouncing all over. So if you were to ask yourself, what does your mind bounce to most? What gets top shelf treatment in your mind? What's the oceanfront property of your mind that you go to time and time again? Is it, is it retirement? Is it financial security? Is it sex? Is it health? Is it beauty? What does your mind turn to? 
Is it envy of neighbor? Is it a a different spouse? Is it a, a better job? What does your mind move towards all the time? Now, some of these things demand time to think about. But here's the challenge. That we think about them too much. That the things of this world, the temporal blessings that we have, the temporal concerns that we have, they secure all of our mind. They get all of our mental time. Now, some of these things, the most insidious, the most dangerous things to think about all the time are actually good things. Family, security, marriage, um, ministry. Uh, These things we can think about all the time. And the things that we think about, the things that we hope for, the things that we that are constantly dwelling in our mind, those are the things that we tend to love. Those are the things that we tend to, shall I say, even worship. You know, you know it's, an, it's a really biblical irony that the very gifts that God gives to us in these things, these good things in life that we think about, these gifts of God, which are meant to reflect his goodness to us so that we love him, we end up loving them more than we actually love him. And this is the basis of idolatry. Please don't think that idolatry is simply done in the Far East before a statue with candles. No, idolatry is really any time that we find meaning, hope, security, value, we love anything more than what we love of God. And that's what he's warning us here. Gird up your minds, prepare your minds, so that you can set your hope fully. So what Peter's doing is he's commanding us to stir up the affections of your soul. That's what hope is. Hope is an affection. You can sit in your chair. You don't even have to act, and you can think about hope. He's calling us, he's commanding us to increase our affections. You say, is that possible? Yes, it is. By thinking, by dwelling, by considering. We can think, and, and, and our hope for these things is increased. It's strengthened by conversing with one another, by studying the scriptures, by, by stopping and thinking about all that God has done for us in Christ, th- there is the welling up of affections for God that will begin to displace the affections of this world. That, that's what we have to do to set our hope fully on the grace to be revealed. Now, you, you all know this. I mean, w- whether it's a vacation that you're planning for or when um, Carol and I were planning for the weddings of our children, uh, there was a date set. And uh, there was much discussion over it. Uh, There was much planning. It didn't mean the rest of our lives stopped happening. But that wedding date was huge. We got the apps on our phone to let us know how many days we're counting down to it. Financial decisions were made. Decisions on who's coming, who's not coming. What are we going to do? How the service is going to go? There were so many exciting decisions to be made. There was so much thought given to it. Our lives were rearranged it, rearranged for it, all for this wedding. Well, it is interesting that the analogy in Scripture is that his return is like a wedding. Setting your hope fully on the grace to be revealed, that's going to be like a wedding. He comes for his bride. Shouldn't we be thinking about that? Uh, you can't put it on a calendar because no one knows the day or the time. But, but we know that it's coming because we have a confident expectation. And so how does your life get adjusted accordingly? You know, Paul says in Colossians, he says, set your mind on things above, not on things below. For you've died and your life is now hidden with Christ. Who is your life? And when he appears, you'll appear with him in glory. 
So he says, set your mind on things above. Dwell on it. You know that you have natural desires for it. You know that you want it. Every person wants it. Every person wants that perfect time. Every person wants that that experience where I'll be fully satisfied in every way. Listen to the way C.S. Lewis kind of explains this long for heaven, this longing for heaven. He says this, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing for, as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men and women feel sexual desires. Well, there is such a thing as sex. He says, if I find in myself a desire, that is for heaven, which no experience in this world can truly satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. So our desires for it are God-given. And so we want to set our hope fully on that day when grace is going to be revealed. Now, if you're here and you're kind of thinking, this is kind of Christian pie in the sky, kind of a Freudian self-fulfillment, you know, kind of a wish fulfillment. This is what you want, and so you project it in terms of reality. Well, even if you're not a Christian here, I would ask you, where is your hope rooted? I mean, what is the object of your hope? I think we all can agree that if you have no object of hope, then you're really deluded. Hope has to have an object to be hope. I mean, it can't be hope otherwise. So where is your hope in this life? If our hope rests in some future potential, or if our hope rests in a relationship they're in that's very meaningful to you, if our hope rests in some job that we've secured, if our hope rests in some experience that we're having, Do you not agree of the precarious, unstable nature? It's temporal. It's subject to a thousand influences that may change it tomorrow for you. Or if your hope is secure in some understanding that you have of life after death that is all in your mind, what kind of hope is that? Just between your ears? We all have hope. We all have hope in something. We all want something. We all worship something. Novelist Daniel Foster Wallace um, wrote this piece. He gave this piece at a graduation uh, speech at Kenyon College, and this was given shortly uh, before he committed suicide. Don't believe he was a Christian, but here's what he wrote. This was a secularist view of the longing that we all have and the importance of rooting it in the right object. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where your top real meaning in life is, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. Or if you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, And you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and frayed. And you will never, ever have more power over others. Excuse me. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart. 
you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. He calls them default settings. They're kind of worship you just gradually slip into. So, so I would ask you, if you're here, friends, what do you worship? What do you hope for? Where are you drawing meaning? Where is your heart set? What have you set your hope on in this life? If it's not to be the grace of our Lord. And, and I would say this too about setting your hope. Uh, it has to be done in a community. Uh, solitary Christian living is the death nail to active hope building in your life. You know, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, was a German theologian in World War II during the Nazi reign, and, and he lived in exile, as it were. Let me just pray for a minute. Father, I do pray for these men and women seeking to serve um, souls in trouble. Lord, we want you to move with grace toward them in mercy, and may those being served even sense your greatness and your mercy in sending help. Father, I pray that you would do a work in and through this for your glory and their joy. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a German theologian. He really lived in exile, being persecuted by the Roman government. And he wrote a book called Living Together. It's a great little book. You can probably read it in a couple days. But it's rich, full of the need that we have for community to stimulate hope in one another. That we need one another to cultivate this hope that I'm speaking about. Girding up your minds, you need one another for that. It can't be done alone. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, who was a theologian back in the 18th century, um, he was one of the writers and leaders of the revival. You know, these revivals in our country in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries were significant. A major outpouring of God's Spirit, many people came to faith in Christ. It, it wasn't a unique work of the Spirit in kind. It was just unique in degree. Many, many people found faith in Christ. And so he's writing to his church, or he's preaching to his church, and he's explaining to them about the need we have to continue to seek God for his outpouring of grace, that our hope could be set fully on him. And so what he suggested was even in sermons. He says if someone's, here's what he says, this is classic. He says this, Here I would particularly desire that you would not suffer those that sit by you to sit sleeping at meeting, but wake one another when anything of that appears. And let none of the godly give way so much to their corruption as to take ill when others admonish them, when others jog them to wake them, either out of their natural sleep in time of public worship or their spiritual sleep, by friendly admonition. What he's saying here is, setting our hope on, on the grace to be revealed setting, is so important. You need to move into each other's lives. Even if someone's sleeping next to you, wake them. This is important for you to set your hope fully on the grace. If you understand the grace to be revealed to you and someone let you sleep through a word of encouragement to stimulate you to that, they wouldn't be a friend to let you just sleep on through it. That's the importance that we're talking about. So just be put on notice. <laughs> Secondly, the second command that he gives us here is, is to conduct yourselves in holiness. Look with me at verse 14. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That's where the command is. You be holy. It's it's a command to be holy. The opposite of this holiness is living according to the way you lived before coming to faith in Christ. Your pre-Christian life. When you lived according to the standards of this culture and world. When the way you acted and the way you lived, it's fine. It's the way everybody else is living. I'm not doing anything uniquely bad or uniquely immoral. I'm living like everyone else. I'm doing fine. And you were in the standard of a cultural understanding of holiness. But Peter's saying, no, you be holy as God is holy. In other words, now that you've been reborn, God has caused you to be born again, you ought to resemble the one who gave you life, God. And so holiness is tethered to how God lives, how God acts. What's holy to God is now of concern to us. So I, I don't. when I speak about we're to be holy as he is holy, I don't want you thinking some Western morality. I don't want you thinking just some dictates of your conservative upbringing. I, I, I want you to think about how God is holy. And the holiness of God is not simple purity. There's an otherness to it. It's, the word actually means separate or distinct or different, that you're living different from everybody else, that you're living different from the way you once lived. This is the holiness. And, and there's a certain attraction to holiness that's different, not a prudishness with purity. I'm speaking about a beauty and attractional to holiness because that person's so different from the culture that there's an attractiveness, there's a draw to it. You know, sometimes you see this in examples of sports, just a stellar athlete that is so far different from all the other athletes. They just grab your attention. Or um, Lauren sent around a a clip from one of those uh, America's Got Talent, and this young 13-year-old girl, Laura Brenton, I think her name was, uh, she, she was just, I mean, she was fold me in half. That's how tall she was. And, and, and she was this cute, naive, innocent little 13-year-old getting out there. She didn't even know what she's, you know, she just looks like she's just out there. She just came from her friend's house. And, of course, America's Got Talent. They get the panel of these expert judges, and they can just, you know, fillet you alive if you don't do well. And one act follows another act, and they're all okay, but they're all kind of the same, kind of vanilla. And then she gets out there, and nobody expects anything from her. And then she belts out this, this opera piece like she'd been in the business for 30 years. And you know what? Nobody said anything. They were stunned. There was a beauty to it. It was so different from all the others that, that it left them stunned. There's an attraction to it. There was a, a draw to it. This is what we're talking about, beauty. Beauty is not a prudishness. It's not, how far can I go with my boyfriend? It's not categories. The character is attractionally beautiful because they're so holy like God. That's what he's saying here. Be holy as I am holy. And if we're exiles in this world, that means that we do break from life. We break from our old way of life. We don't separate from people. We just separate our lifestyle. We have a different lifestyle. You can do this now. The Christian can now be holy because Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection has broken the dominion of sin. You know, if you read Romans 6 this afternoon, you're going to see that the Bible teaches us before you come to faith in Christ, you are dominated by sin. Sin 
is your master. Uh, You might be moral in the world's eyes, but you can't but sin because you're not living for the glory of God. And, And the power of Christ crushes the dominion of sin. And now you can be holy. Now, I want to be pastorally sensitive here. It doesn't mean that you're going to be sinless, but you will sin less. Because the dominating power of sin has been broken. Now, I will say this, that there is still indwelling sin. We still live in the flesh. We're still tempted and we still falter. And that's the tension we live in. That's why Paul said, I don't do that which I want to do. And I do that which I don't want to do. So help me, God, who will deliver me from this body of death? So we want to. We can now be holy as he is holy because Christ is broken. So do you see change in your life? If you are a Christian living in exile, do you see a change? Has there been a change in your life? Has there been a break from your former ignorance? Are there differences? Is the difference between you and your neighbor only seen on Sunday morning when you go to church? Is there a difference in, look in your relationships, look in your marriage and look in your your work relationships, look in your relationships with the community and the relationships in the church. Do you see a difference in the way that you once lived and the way that you live now? Is there a difference? Could someone see the difference in your life? You know, in we're studying with the interns these revivals in the uh, 18th and the 19th centuries, and it really is some fascinating reading. Um, but what was part of the revivals is, like in Kentucky, many people, hundreds of people, would come to faith in Christ at one preaching event, let's say. And, uh, and what happened is, as the revival spread, it became difficult to discern what was legitimate conversions and what was the legitimate new birth, and what was counterfeit. And so the theological minds of the time began to try to figure out, how do I know if this experience was genuine work of God's Spirit, or whether it's just an emotional outpouring, or struggling in life, or their temperament is just more unstable? How would we know? I mean, people were fainting, they were crying, they were convicted of their sin, they felt deep remorse. But but were those the markers that evidenced true new birth? And what these theologians and pastors came up with is, no, they don't. They they can all be counterfeited. They can all be driven out of temperament. Here are some of the markers of true new birth. Here are some of the changes, what I'm giving you. Here are some of the changes that you should have seen or you should see in your life. Things such as a deep humility over our sin. a, A sense of our unworthiness before God and his grace. A deep love for God and his willingness to condescend to us in Christ. A profound love for a Savior who would take upon himself our sins. A deep love for Christ. I mean, an affectionate love, not an appreciation. He saved me from hell. But I mean, a heart love for him. Care for the souls of others. I actually care about other people now more than I ever have. And I care about their eternal destiny. Or moral transformation. That, that I am moving forward in holiness. Or this is, this is incredible. This one struck me right to the heart when I read it. A break. A break from the ruling power of self-centeredness in a person's life. That, that when your tendency to always think of yourself first begins to melt, you know God's spirit's at work. And I'll tell you, that, that, that struck me right to the core. 
Because we, the, the nature of men and the nature of women, they are passionate about the self. And whether you look, whether you get a picture, who do you look at first? You. Or you think about how does this affect, you know, any event changes in life, what's the first question? How's this going to affect me? And when that begins to melt, you know the Spirit of God is at work. So have you seen this change? Have you broken from the past? That you're no longer living with this dichotomy of secular and sacred. In other words, are you one way on Sunday and another way the rest of the week? Are you one way at church and another way at home? Uh, gentlemen, do your children see you opening the Bible on Sunday, but never during the week? You know, is there a dichotomy in your life? Because what he's saying here is to be holy as God is holy means that there's a character transformation. There isn't little individual pockets of change. It may start that way, but then, then it begins to take over, and slowly, and incrementally, slowly, there are a lot of two steps forward, one or two back, no doubt about that, but there's a transformation of the soul. And that's what we look for, to see if new birth has actually occurred. Because this is the, here's the warning. Many of us has been, have been raised in religious homes. We understand the components of what makes the Christian faith the Christian faith. And we're religious. Uh, the difference is we see religion as a means of, of finding favor with God, whereas the Christian has been acted upon by God, and in response, the change is driven by God. He's caused us to be born again. Okay, so the first thing we see, if we're going to live in exile, we're setting our hope fully on the grace to be revealed. While we're living in exile, we want to be holy as he is holy. And then last, living in exile, he calls us to conduct ourselves with fear. Look with me at 17. If you call him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So he sees this life that we're currently living. We are, the Christian is an exile. If you're not a Christian, you're not in exile, you're home. But, but, but for the Christian, we're not home. And so we're in exile. He says, conduct yourselves with fear. Now, you may be thinking, well, conduct myself with fear. I mean, doesn't perfect love cast out all fear? I mean, haven't you been banging God's fatherly love over us and we shouldn't fear him, we should approach him and love him and find in him all the resources necessary for life? Absolutely. I think what Peter's driving at here is a fear that is not terror. It's not, I'm stricken with fright, but it's a reverential affection for God. That I have a clear understanding that he is both my father and my judge. You see it in verse 17, that I hold these intentions. Yes, he is a father who loves me. And yes, he is a judge. He is unbelievably holy. We don't want to separate these two. Here's what Alexander McLaren, a Scottish preacher, said in the 19th century. He said, I suppose in Peter's days, as in our days, there were people that so fell in love with one aspect of the divine nature that they had no eyes for any other and who magnify the thought of, of the Father that they forgot the thought of judge. That terror, that error has been committed over and over again in all ages. So that the church as a whole, one may say, has gone swaying from one extreme to the other and has rent these two conceptions widely apart and sometimes has been so foolish enough to pit them against each other instead of doing as Peter does here, braiding them together. 
as both conspiring to one result, the production in the Christian, the heart of wholesome all, because God is all full. He's full of all. He's both judge, but he's also your father. And we need to respond in fear to him. Now, how do we do this? Well, well, he speaks to that every Christian here, I want you to think every Christian here is going to stand before God. Well, every person here is going to stand before God. But every Christian will stand before God. And, and he says clearly, he says, um, according, he will impartially judge according to each one's deeds. So conduct yourselves in fear. In other words, what Peter's warning us is don't fall guilty to the sin of presumption. Because you are a child of God doesn't mean that God is just going to pass over life and, and not look at your life because you're his child. It's not like you're the son of some tyrant king who lets his son get away with murder but, but punishes all the other murders. Now, I don't think this judgment leads to condemnation. I think it, I think it leads to a recognition over all that he has forgiven you. I think it's an accounting. It's not an accusation. There's a review that goes on with our lives. So if you can picture your life like a movie screen, and, and one day you stand before God, you see all of your life, everything you said and didn't say, everything you did and didn't do. And yet after each one, it's you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. How will you understand the depth of his mercy if you don't fully understand the height of your sin? They go together. This isn't a day to dread, but it is a day to be soberly reflective over and joyful that you have a Savior who has forgiven you for those things. You know, it's no different. I was driving down 540 about a year and a half ago, two years ago, and coming from Creedmoor and getting ready to pass the 6 Forks exit, and there was a police car, and of course all everybody was breaking, you know, all the red lights. It was kind of an uphill to the, to the road, so you don't see the officer there and until he's in view, and then all the red lights go on, everybody slows down, and ha, 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 you know, everybody's speeding. And, and so he drove by, and the next day I'm going to work again, and all of a sudden the brake lights, and there he is again. But this time I looked in the car, and there was no one in the car. The car they parked the car there. And uh, so the, the third and the fourth day, people were zooms, flying right, but there was no officer in the car. There was no, there was no fear. There was no threat. There was no... There is no consideration. Nothing's going to happen to me, so I'm going to just go ahead and drive the way I want to drive. We don't want to think that way with judgment with God. It, he judges impartially. We are his children. We stand forgiven, but, but it's to cause us to be mindful and to be sober over our lives, not presume upon him. But look at the other reason that we're called to fear, and, and that's in the second half of 18. He says this, he says, um, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Peter's saying to us, if you're a Christian here, you want to be fearful over the nature of sin in your life because you've been bought with precious blood. This idea of ransom it's a theological term in our day. It was a commercial term in Jesus' day. It was the act of paying for the redemption or for the freedom of a slave or a prisoner. So an act of war, you're taken prisoner. If they were to retrieve you or ransom you, they would pay a fine or a fee, and then your freedom would be purchased by the extent of money. What Peter's using that as an analogy, he's saying Jesus Christ dying on the cross, shedding his precious blood for us is what brought us from slavery to sin into freedom and holiness 
That's what He has done for us. If He has shed His blood for us because of our sin, may we be in fear over walking casually in the sin that He died for. We don't want to add scorn to the work of Christ by our careless attitude towards sin, towards our careless attitude towards life. Be mindful. This precious blood has redeemed us. This blood that was foreknown before the foundations of the world. Notice that. Before you and I were ever born or committed anything good or bad, it was known that he would shed his blood. In fact, look in 21. He says, not only is his blood precious, and not only was the plan precious before the foundations, he says, and who through Jesus or him, through him you're believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are now in God. The faith and the hope that you now have are are tethered to Christ. And so in this life of exile, we want to live holy lives. We want to conduct ourselves in fear because of the preciousness of the blood. Now, I think McLaren is correct in terms of we sway between God's love and God's judge. You know, I was raised Catholic, so we heard a lot about the judgment of God. But many of you have heard a lot about the love of God. And and we have to braid them together. We've domesticated God. He's our friend. He's our pal. He's our our go-to. He had all these expressions. We've domesticated God. You know, do you fear him? There's plenty of things I know we fear. We fear financial meltdown. We fear government. We fear health issues. We fear disease. We fear terrorism. We fear a lot of things. Do you fear God? Is there room in your life right now? Do you ever fear God? Do you ever consider him in his awful holiness? Do you ever fear him? Do you ever step back and think, I'm dealing with something so beyond my categories that that, that you just kind of find humility coming on you without requesting it? Do, Do you fear him? Is there not a place for us to fear? Not to displace or to dispel love. We fear one another more than we fear God. We fear the disapproval of one another more than we fear his disapproval. Surely, among the church, this must change. We have to fear him. It leads to holiness. It leads to righteousness. It doesn't lead to a quivering anxiety. It leads to a reverent respect because he is also your father. We are in a time of exile, as we're going to hear throughout this book. And in this exile, he has told us about a salvation that is beyond tracing out. And the fuel of this salvation should lead to us living in hope. We've set our hope fully on the grace to be revealed. It leads to us living in holiness. Be holy as he is holy. And it leads to us living in fear, conducting ourselves with fear. I would ask you to take time this afternoon. I know there's a game on. But I would ask you to take time to consider, why don't, where is my hope? Am I striving for holiness? Do I fear him? What do I fear more than God? And is that a wise thing to continue in? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the grace that you have given to us in your son. Thank you for your kindness to us, the mercy that you have given to us, that that you can explain who you are in your greatness, and yet we can rest because of Christ. I pray, Father, for those even here today that have had their hope fixed on other things that will not last. Father, lead them to repentance. And those who have never placed their hope 
in the precious blood of Christ redeeming them and reconciling them to you. Father, stir within their souls questions, uncertainties, a sense of unrest that would drive them to speak with a member of this church or to come forward and speak with us. Father, we want both conversions to take place, new birth, that you would cause new birth, and we pray that you would move those here uh, to a greater love, uh, a greater hope, a greater holiness, and a greater fear before you. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.